for sure. Mark chapter 3, again, it'll also be up on the screen, beginning in uh, verse number 20. Mark chapter 3, verse number 20. I'm going to read the rest of chapter 3 this morning. One time Jesus entered a house. The crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard what was happening, they tried to take him away. He's out of his mind, they said. But the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them over and responded with an illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan, he asked. A kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. And if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man like Satan and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. I tell you the truth, all sin and blasphemy can be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. This is a sin with eternal consequences. He told them this because they were saying he was possessed by evil spirits. Verse 31, then Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and they sent word for him to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus, and someone said, Your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. And now listen to Jesus' reply. Who is my brother? Or excuse me, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he looked at those around him and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and Mother. Would you pray with me, Holy Spirit, we just pray in these next few minutes together, that you would help me, God, to speak not a single word of my own. God, help me to communicate clearly, with boldness, with simplicity, the word of God this morning. God, help me to decrease and help you to increase and be the focus of our time together today. And Lord, we pray that this word that you have prepared for us today. I pray this word would challenge our hearts. Lord, speak to us in a fresh way this morning so that when we walk out of here, we walk out of here changed and transformed because we've encountered the presence of the living God. It is my desire, it's my prayer, both for myself and for this congregation, Lord, that we would walk out of here better reflecting the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated this morning. At this point in the text, in Mark chapter 3, I will kind of catch you up to speed if you haven't been with us the last couple of weeks as we've been working through the Gospel of Mark. At this point in the text, it's pretty clear that Jesus' fame and his popularity is beginning to grow among the crowds. If you look back at Mark chapter 3, we have on the screen verses 7 and 8. We read this. It says, Jesus went out to the lake with his disciples, and a large crowd followed him. Look where they came from. It says, they came from all over Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, from east of the Jordan River, and even as far as 
north as Tyre and Sidon. The news about Jesus' miracles, they had spread far and wide, and vast numbers of people were coming to see Jesus. His popularity and his fame was expanding and growing and increasing at rapid rates. Though not every member of the crowd, as we learned a few weeks ago, was interested in a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. There were various groups inside that crowd that had come to, to be near to Jesus, but not every person inside of the crowd that, that was pushing against Jesus was interested in a lifelong relationship. There were some in the crowd who were following desperately only in search of a healing miracle. There were people that that uh, present that day that were wanting to be near to Jesus. They wanted to touch him. They wanted to get the miracle that they were looking for. But as soon as they received the miracle, they were gone. They moved on. They were no longer interested in a relationship with this man, Jesus. There were also some in the crowd that day who were simply following Jesus because it was really a new movement, a, a new fad, something exciting that was happening. Jesus had come onto the scene, and, and the crowds were starting to get larger and larger. Therefore, people started to jump on the bandwagon of this new thing called Jesus Christ. And they were only interested in the newness of what was happening, but as soon as that newness would wear off, we would see even later on, once Jesus gets closer and closer to the cross, that crowd of people gets smaller and smaller. They weren't interested in a lifelong relationship. They were just interested in the newness of what was taking place. We also, though, know that there were some in that crowd who were genuinely interested in just simply being with Jesus. We looked at a couple of weeks ago, Jesus would actually call to himself some of the disciples. He would call Peter, James, and John, and he called them to just simply be with him, to, to spend time in his presence before he would send them out to do ministry. So inside that crowd, there were, there were a plethora of people, but some were there just for the miracle, some were there because of the newness of what was taking place, and then some were there because they genuinely were interested in a relationship with Jesus. Now, I'm going to just pause for a moment this morning, and I'm not going to ask anyone to raise hands. But I think this would be an appropriate time to pause and ask this question of ourselves, to search our heart and ask God to reveal what kind of crowd follower am I? What, what kind of crowd follower am I? Am I interested in just receiving the benefits of what Jesus can offer, but not interested in a relationship with him? Am I interested in following him because it's cool and it's the new thing and it's a new fad, but as soon as that newness wears off, I'm going to jump ship? Or am I genuinely interested? Am I genuinely seeking and desiring a relationship, a lifelong relationship? with the only person that can truly transform my heart. That's a question that myself and you or yourself, we have to answer. We have to pray and ask Holy Spirit, search my heart. Test me. See if there is any wicked way in me. Help me to determine what are my motivations. Am I interested in a relationship with Christ? Or am I just simply interested in what he can offer me on the surface but have no desire to go much deeper. I said a few weeks ago, a book from called uh, Not a Fan by Kyle Eidelman. He's a pastor and he said this, the biggest threat to the church today 
is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. They want to be close enough to Jesus to get all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything from them. Yes. As soon as, and I said this a few weeks ago, as soon as things begin to get tough, as soon as the, the pressure is put on, as soon as opposition comes, you will see in Scripture that there are many who will jump ship. They're not interested in, in hardship. They're only interested in a relationship with Jesus when it's easy. But when it comes time to taking up their cross and following him and denying themselves, many will abandon, many will walk away from the crowd because they only want to receive the benefits, but they don't want to get too close to him that he would actually expect something of him. This was the crowd we see in Mark chapter 3 that, that is hovering, that is near to Jesus. As you move on in Mark 3, though, we see that besides the crowd that followed him, we, we come in contact with two other groups of people today who came to Jesus. His biological family, mother and brothers and sister, and also the teachers of religious law, who will come into play in several places throughout the gospel accounts. What's very interesting is when you consider the, the biological family of Jesus and the, the, the teachers of religious law, both groups of people are, are very distinct, very different. They, they really don't have a lot in common, but both equally, and we will see this in the text today, both groups of people equally misunderstood Jesus' mission and his eternal purpose. Let's look at this part of the text again in Mark chapter 3. It says, when his family heard... Speaking of Jesus' family, when they heard what was happening, they, they tried to take Jesus away. And they even said of Jesus, he is out of his mind. And then the teachers of religious law who had arrived from Jerusalem, they go a bit further and they say of Jesus that he is possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets his power to cast out demons. So we see that his closest relatives, his biological family, and, and the theological specialists, the teachers of the law who, who knew the scripture better than most, these two groups of people, they were mistaken, and they offer mistaken speculations. Let me talk just real briefly about the family that is, that is present here in the text. Jesus' family, they, they try to quiet him. They, they don't want to ruin the, the reputation of their name. They even thought that Jesus himself was out of his mind. And it says they even tried to take him away. Now, I don't want to bog down on this, but, but the word that is used for take him away, it is a Greek word that means, it is proteo. If you want to just sound intelligent, you know, just throw it out there. Um, and, and it speaks of taking somebody away, proteo. And it means to seize something forcibly. And so when, when it speaks of his biological family, it actually says that they are trying to seize him in a forcible manner. They're trying to pull him away from doing what the father had called him to do. We see this word, proteo, show up in a few places in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6, verse 17, it says, For Herod had sent soldiers, look, to arrest. That word is proteo, to seize forcibly and imprison John. We also see it in Mark chapter 12, verse 12, says the religious leaders, what did they want to do? They wanted to arrest Jesus. They wanted to proteo him. They wanted to seize him forcibly. They were trying to pull him away from what the Father was calling him to do. 
to avert Jesus from his divine purpose was actually labeled by Jesus himself as being satanic. Later on, Peter, when, when Jesus is beginning to reveal that he's going to be taken away, that, that he was going to be crucified, Peter, in this very bold moment, he steps and says, no one's going to do that. I'm not going to let that happen. We will go to the death. What does is, what is Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. To avert, to try to distract, to try to pull Jesus away from his divine purpose was actually labeled as being satanic. It was against the mission of God. The biological family, they opposed the will of God without realizing it. And because of that, they became outsiders. What about the teachers of religious law that we see in the text? They accused Jesus of having a spirit of Satan. Now, they misunderstood. They, they missed it horribly. They, they didn't understand the, the purpose, the eternal purpose of Jesus Christ at all. They accused him of having a satanic spirit. They assumed that the source of Jesus' power didn't come from heaven above, but instead from the kingdom of Satan. These teachers of religious law, their goal, their objective was to defame, was to sabotage the ministry of Jesus as the crowds got bigger. They became more nervous and they did anything they could to distract and to deter Jesus from his purpose. Both parties, biological family and teachers of religious law, both parties misunderstood Jesus' actions. And they failed to grasp what it truly meant to be a true member of God's family. That's what I want to talk about this morning. What does it look like to be a true member of the family of God? Because when we get to the end of Mark chapter 3, when his mother and his brothers and his sister, they are there calling for Jesus. He says, who is my brother? Who is my sister? We see that it is those who do the will of God. It's nothing to do with biological ties. It has everything to do with being obedient to the will of the Father. So what does being a member of God's family look like? I want to share just a few things with you real briefly this morning. Number one, membership in God's family is open to everyone. Now that is a very simple statement, but something that sometimes I think we get wrong because in our minds we think, well, it's only it's only designed, God's family is only designed for a select few or for those who maybe get their act together first. But but I want you to see this morning that membership in God's family, it is open to everyone. Now let me just go on a, a how many of you here this morning, how many of you like uh, history? Okay, a whole lot better than those who like math. <laughs> Last week, I had like one math person, um, and I, I was in trouble. Uh, I had an illustration related to math that I'm not sure it may have gone over everyone's head. That's okay. I, I want to just go on a quick little journey with you. Some of you may know this, but in order for us to understand how open the invitation to be a part of God's family really is, we need to understand a few things about the Jewish culture. The Jewish culture plays significant value 
on biological and genealogical connections. If you were to read through scripture, um, and, and I think we have this tendency, uh, the beginning of the year in January, when we're ready to go again, it's a new year and, and New Year's resolutions, all right, this is the year that I'm going to make it through uh, all 66 books of the Bible. You start in Genesis. You get to Genesis chapter 5. Uh, you're okay because you know there's stories after. You get to Genesis chapter 5, and there's this long list of, of um, you know, the, the begots, uh, this genealogical record of, of who's related to who. And, and at some point, and you move through Scripture, and you get to First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, you see more of that. And, and I don't know, if, and, and I'm not going to ask anyone in here to be honest. I don't want to do that. Um, but, but there have been times when I've read through Scripture, I'm like, I can't pronounce these names. These aren't names I'm going to use for my own children. So I'm just going to, you know, turn the page, you know, page one, page two, turn it over. Well, you know, though we have this tendency to want to kind of jump over the, the genealogical records. There is great value in those. This is not a message on genealogy this morning. But, especially for the Jewish culture, they had great value, great significance. There are several genealogies that are noted in the Old Testament scriptures. You see them in Genesis. You see them in the Chronicles. Family history was very, very important to Israel's existence. But why? A few reasons. Number one, there were these records that we see in the Old Testament scripture, they prove one's true identity as a Jew which then proved that they were a partaker of God's promise, the promise that was given to Abram, that there would be land and a nation and children, that they would be a part of the chosen people of God. This family history, it revealed for the Jewish people what portion of land belonged to them. If they were of the tribe of, uh, of, of Judah or Issachar or Ephraim, whatever tribe they were a part of, would determine what portion of land they belonged to. I think all of us in this room, if we're honest, we would want to know what, what tribe we belong to because we would want to know where am I supposed to live? What, what land belongs to me and what doesn't? I mean, they didn't have the ability to, uh, to call a survey company to come and, and survey out the ground for them to determine what part was theirs and what wasn't. God had promised specific land to different tribes. And so the genealogical record was key for them because it helped them to determine, okay, does this land belong to me or does it belong to my brothers over here? It also determined if the person was allowed to serve in the priesthood. You read through scripture, it's only the tribe of Levi that was uh, allotted uh, the privilege and the opportunity of serving as priests. Aaron was of the tribe of Levi, and he was one of the priests. But if you were of the tribe of Issachar, or Ephraim, or some of the other tribes, uh, Dan, you were not allotted the privilege of serving in the priesthood. That was set apart for the tribe of Levi. It also proved that they were tied to someone famous. Um, maybe some of you have, have gone through and done some of the Ancestry.com and tried to trace even your own family uh, as far back as you can to see maybe that you're tied to somebody important. Maybe someone in here is, is tied to you know one of the presidents of the United States or somebody even way beyond that. And, and, and so for the, for the Jewish people, if they had this genealogical record, it would help them to determine, am I, am I connected to Moses or am I connected to David, people who had great blessings promised over them? But most important, it was helpful in tracing the line of the Messiah. 
you get to Matthew chapter 1, that's one of the genealogies that I would highly recommend that you never skip over for various reasons, and I don't have time to go into that this morning. But in that genealogy, you see a family line that leads to the Messiah, the son of David, that is Jesus Christ, who was to come. Often viewed, the Jewish people often viewed these biological connections really as a means to preserve their family line, their honor, and their wealth. Not gonna, you can throw it up here, I'm gonna actually skip this. Um, there is um, Hebrew literature that refers to um, how they would try to preserve their family line, how important uh, the genealogical records were. One's entire life and identity would be wrapped up in these biological ties. And I think, I think if you read through scripture, you see that to be childless, to be without a, a child, especially without a son, was not only a disappointment, but for some, it would bring shame. When you get to 1 Samuel chapter 1, one of my favorite um, books in the Bible, 1 Samuel, there's this woman by the name of Hannah. And Hannah uh, is married to Elkanah, and she is unable to have children. Uh, Elkanah is also married to another woman who has multiple children, and she's kind of rubbing it in Hannah's face, and Hannah so desperately longs to have a child. Uh, for various reasons, she wants to have a son, so, so the family line can continue, because there is great uh, honor in that. There is great respect that is given in not just having a, a child, but having a son. And if you read on in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she prays the Lord, hears her prayer, she's given a son, she dedicates that son by the name of Samuel to the Lord. And so we see that even for the Jewish people, it brought great pride to have a son and to be able to carry on their family name. Your family ties would determine whether or not you were a true Jewish citizen. The Jews also viewed their, their set-apartness or their chosen-by-God status as some special privilege or position that only belonged to them. Uh, they had it in their mind that, well, we are the Jewish people, we are the chosen ones, and this only belongs, this position, the status that belongs to us, and no one else can receive it unless you are a true citizen or a true Jewish individual. Therefore, Gentiles, that's why they were considered outsiders. There was no room for an outsider to join the club. Outsiders, they were unclean and they were unfit to be a part of this special club that they had formed together. Something beautiful happens in Jesus Christ in the cross. That division, that that ideal or that understanding that this club is, is only meant for one group of people and not everything was torn down the cross. Yes. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross had opened the door wide open for membership to extend to both Jews and Gentiles. Amen. Everyone. Amen. Amen. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, let me read this to you. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him. And peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us, here's the beauty, now all of us, verse 18, can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit. 
because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. And look at this last phrase. <laughs> Jews and Gentiles, not just the Jewish people, but both Jews and Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says. You are members of God's family. Amen. Jews and Gentiles. Folks, if we look through Scripture, it's pretty clear, especially in the Gospel account, that the ministry of Jesus, even as revealed in Mark, has made it clear from the very beginning that belonging to his club or to his family, it's all inclusive. Look at this. The, the excommunicated leper is touched and healed by Jesus. He was an outcast. Uh, to the Jewish people, he was unclean, but he was touched by Jesus and he was healed because he was a member of God's family. The unclean, demon-possessed man is set free. The sinful tax collectors who were considered the scum of the earth, they are worthy of Jesus' time and fellowship because they are members of God's family. They, the overlooked and really less than impressive fishermen are selected as some of Jesus' closest followers. Folks, if you were to if you were to go look at the resume of Peter, of James, and John, I can tell you right now, if you were in HR and you were in the hiring business, you would put those resumes aside and you would not even give them a second look. But Jesus, the, the less impressive fisherman Peter and James and John, God saw potential in them and recognized that they too could be a part of his family. Once you hear this statement this morning, maybe you need to hear this, or maybe somebody you know needs to hear this. There is room in God's family for you. There is room in God's family for you. The open enrollment period to be a part of God's family is now and until Christ returns. There may be somebody here this morning that needs to hear that there is room in God's family for you despite your past, despite your resume, despite what may be against you. There is room in God's family for you. God's desire is for all people to come to saving faith. 2 Peter 3, he does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to do what? To repent. He came, as we will see in the Gospels, he came to seek and save who? The lost. The invitation to join God's true family, I want you to hear this, because if you miss this, you may think that I'm way out here in right or left field. The invitation to join God's true family, it is all-inclusive. It is open to everyone. But I want you to hear this. There is only one door by which we come to saving faith. There is only one door by which we enter into the family of God. There's not option A, B, and C. There's not door one, two, and three. There's one door. The door is Jesus Christ. Jesus was very clear. John chapter 14, verse 6. What did Jesus say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's one door. The invitation is open to everyone. It, it's available to every, there is room for every single person, no matter how bad of a sinner they may be, no matter how frustrating that person may be, no matter how much they may rub us, there is room in God's family for them. But there is only one door 
Only one way we can come in, and it is through the person of Jesus Christ. The invitation is open to everyone. Number two, and I'll get these last two to you quickly. True members of God's family, they pledge their devotion to God in His ways alone. I want you to see in Mark chapter 31, verse 30, uh, 31 through 35, that Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. They stood outside and said, we're going to come out and talk with them. There was a crowd sitting around Jesus. and said, your mother and your brothers are outside asking for you. Jesus replied, who is, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And then he looked at those around him and said, look, these are my mother and brothers. Look at verse 35. Anyone who does God's will is my brother, my sister, and my mother. Now, this was not the case with these two groups of people. The, the biological family of Jesus and the religious teachers of the law, uh, they, they did not get it. Their devotion was far from God. Instead, they were actually trying to get Jesus away from doing what the Father had called him to do. Jesus' biological family, they were trying to prevent him from doing his Father's will. Their primary concern was preserving the family name and guarding their reputation. They believed that Jesus was out of his mind and they didn't even consider Jesus didn't even consider at the time his biological family to be a true member of God's family because they were unable to do the will of the Father. The teachers of religious law, they were undermining Jesus' authority. They were convinced that Jesus himself was receiving authority from Satan. We see in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, the teachers of religious law who arrived from Jerusalem said he's possessed by Satan, the prince of demons. That's where he gets the power to cast out demons. Jesus called them out on their sinful behavior. And their attempt to derail Jesus' mission here on earth. And actually they're called out as blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because they were trying to avert, they were trying to distract, they were trying to derail Jesus from doing what he was called to do. They wanted him to disobey. And Jesus was going to obey his father. Jesus then explains what's really taking place in this Parable Mark 3, it says, Jesus called them over, responded with this illustration. How can Satan cast out Satan? Kingdom divided by civil war will collapse. Similarly, a family splintered by feuding will fall apart. If Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger, someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. Well, what is Jesus saying here? The kingdom of God is actually waging war on the kingdom of Satan. And he uses this parable to further explain that there is a stronger man, the man of Jesus, who will bring down this strong man, Satan. How do we know this? Remember John earlier? John spoke of, of another man that was coming, a, a man who was more powerful than him. Remember in Mark chapter 1, John noted earlier that there was one more powerful than him that was coming, and that more powerful person is Jesus Christ, who is ushered in the kingdom of God. Isaiah prophesied of one who is stronger in Isaiah 49, verses 24 and 25. So I ask this question, what is required of a member in God's family? We know the, the invitation is open to everyone, but what is required of you? What is required of me? What, what are the stipulations? If I want to be a member of God's family, what does God require of me? Is there a card that I have to have? Is, is there something I have to do? What is required of me? Here's what's required. Complete devotion to God's will and to His ways. Complete devotion to God's will and His ways. 
which means sacrificing our wants and submitting to his ways. It's easy to say, sometimes very difficult to follow through. Number three, membership in God's family. Members of God's family will pay a price. Folks, the price is worth the eternal reward. We must resist the urge to do things my way and instead do things God's way. How many of you in here, like me, I'm one that I would much prefer to do things my way, for my agenda, for my plan, for my schedule, because in my mind, it's going to work out very well. Anybody else? Is there anyone else that's like me at some level? Okay, good. We've got some honesty going on here. Thank you. We must resist the urge to do things my way instead do things God's way, submission to his way. What does Jesus do when he's in the garden? He's in the garden praying just moments away before he's going to be taken away. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be crucified. But just moments before his arrest and his crucifixion, Jesus is praying fervently, passionately, so much so that the Gospel of Luke said that as Jesus is praying, he is sweating drops of blood. That's how intense the prayer of Jesus was in the garden. What is he praying? He doesn't say, you know, God, God, Father, I'm going to do this my way. Here's my plan. Can we try this? You know, let's go this route instead of this route. Let's try this option instead of this option. What does Jesus pray as he is fervently, passionately praying to his Father? He says, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, Jesus said, but yours be done. Folks, we have to resist, and I know I, I have this tendency to want to do things my way, but, but sometimes my way, it may look good. But if it's not God's way, it's not God's vision, if it's not God's plan, I, I, I'm ready to jump ship and try His way, because His way is the best way. We must be willing to say no to the good things in order to say yes to the better and best things. Now it's hard. I, I don't think it's it's very challenging, at least to, to say say no to the bad things. Now, in, in action, sometimes that's hard, but it's a whole lot harder to say and even live out saying no to even the good things in our life in order to say yes to the better and best things. Let me explain later on. Uh, Jesus, when he's with his disciples, he's going to encourage them. He's going to challenge them and even say, if you truly want to be my disciples, one of the things you have to do is hate father, mother, brother, and sister. Now, now it didn't mean hate as in dislike, but it meant to love less. It, it was all about priority. It was all about making certain that Jesus, following God in obedience to his will, was their priority, and then everything else should fall into play. That's why, that's why Jesus will say, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added unto you. So what good things have we devoted? And, and these are questions that, that we all have to answer individually. What good things have we devoted our time and our energy and our resources to that are great? There's nothing wrong with them, but they are keeping us from the best things or the best thing, and that is Jesus. Is the kingdom of God my priority? Or am I consumed with building my own little kingdom here on earth? Saying no to good things in order to say yes to the best thing, that is Jesus. We must be prepared to experience some form of ridicule, abuse, 
and even mockery when God's will becomes our will. Folks, people will question you. They will question your decisions as we reorient our priorities. As we say no to things in our life that are good in order to say yes to the best things, as we devote ourselves without hesitation to God and His will, people will question. People, people will try to divert us or, or distract us from doing what God has called us to do. Think back to Jesus' family. They thought He was out of His mind. Teachers of law, they correlated His ministry with His satanic realm. Our decisions will be scrutinized. But if our decision is obedience to God's will, if it is following his ways and not my ways, then it is worth the scrutiny, it is worth the mockery, as long as we are obedient to him. The enemy wants to distract and divide. That is the enemy's purpose. But we must remember that I am a member of God's family. And as a member of his family, our objective, our aim, our purpose is to do his will at all costs. And the eternal reward is always worth it. When we are obedient and we do the will of the Father, God will fully satisfy our longing for Him when we see Him face to face. When we do His will and when we are obedient, the kingdom of God will grow beyond our own imagination. When we are obedient to the will of the Father, God's mission here on earth will be fulfilled. And when we are obedient to the Father and we do His will, I can promise you this this morning, lives will be eternally impacted. How many want to see lives eternally impacted? Amen? Amen. Obedience to the will of the Father. Would you stand with me this morning?